Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I pray first this evening that you will all be patient with me because I am going to begin this evening by being a bit redundant, a bit repetitive. I'm going to whine and complain a little bit about things that you've heard me whine and complain about oftentimes before, but it really will work as an introduction to what we're about to read. You know that I listen. I am an active listener. I have mentioned that many times through the years. And especially now that for the last year, because of COVID, pretty much everybody has gone online, which gives me the opportunity to go listen to an even wider selection of people who are now on the Internet, who just didn't used to be, but now are. And so I've been paying attention the last couple of weeks to people who are preaching on the book of Isaiah. There are many different series. If you just go to Sermon Audio, put in sermons on Isaiah, you'll find a great many of them. I try to narrow my searches and my listening to people who are reformed, sovereign grace thinking people. And what you'll find universally as you listen to those folk is that they concentrate their Isaiah teaching on those particular passages that have to do with Christ so that they can make a new covenant message out of Isaiah so that they can talk about the messianic passages in Isaiah so that they can concentrate on things like Isaiah 53 or so that they can concentrate on unto us a child is born and a son is given. The government will be upon his shoulders all depending on what their particular system or hermeneutic or point is that they are trying to drive. And then they will say this proves that Isaiah was a good and an accurate prophet because he prophesied about the Messiah and sure enough those things came true. So look how accurate Isaiah is. And invariably, when listening to those messages, I find myself saying to the person, whoever it is, on YouTube or on Facebook or on Sermon Audio, I'm, I'm, I'm yelling back at my iPad screen and I'm saying, I, I agree. I agree with you. Isaiah is an accurate prophet when it comes to predicting Christ, the Messiah to come. But what about all that other stuff he said? Because he said a lot of other stuff that nobody seems to want to talk about, especially within the Reformed camp, because the other stuff that Isaiah said has to do with a glorious future for Israel. And that does not fit the system, the hermeneutic the standard amillennial covenantal approach. And so they just simply don't address it. They'll address those sections that are easy, those sections that are comfortable, those sections that are obvious. But I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I have found a couple of written commentaries on the book of Isaiah. I have a couple written commentaries on the book of Isaiah. It's very difficult to find preaching series through the book of Isaiah, especially from a Reformed perspective, because Isaiah says things that just upend the covenantal amillennial standard approach. I, on the other hand, would prefer to just kind of stick with what does the Bible say and whether that upsets my system or not is immaterial whether that runs contrary to the creeds is immaterial. It's what does the Bible say? And last week we looked at the first third of chapter 40 of Isaiah. 
that begins with comfort, comfort for my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare is ended. And that's kind of a difficult section for anybody to read through and preach through if they are convinced that God is done with and has permanently divorced national Israel. If Jerusalem is, as I mentioned last week, just symbolic of all the people of God from the time that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden until Christ comes back, all of those people are subsumed under the new heading of Jerusalem, which I heard just last week. If that's the fact, then this language really doesn't mean anything, except that Isaiah identifies what Jerusalem he's talking about. He also calls them Zion. He also calls them my people. It's very obvious that he's talking about physical, actual, historic Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name, that piece of land over there in the Middle East, the very land that the children of Israel are promised to come back to, that land of Canaan. And in that first third of chapter 40, we read things like, a voice says, call out. And he answered, what shall I call out? And the answer is, all flesh is grass and all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. And so it's pretty clear from the first part of chapter 40 that God is not real keen on human capability, human flesh. It's here for a moment. It blows away. It's gone. But the word of God, but the word of our God stands forever. It's unchanging. It has always said what it says. And so our job is to stand toe to toe with it and bring our thinking into conformity with what the word of God actually says. But the last two thirds of this chapter are God speaking of himself and defending himself and basically taking the attitude, who do you think you're talking to? Who do you think you're dealing with? What are you going to compare me to? Who did I ever consult? Who did I ever take advice from? In other words, God's word stands forever, and God has said what God wants to say, and he's used the words that he wants to use, and he hasn't changed those words because he didn't consult with anybody or anybody's system or anybody's hermeneutic or anybody's eschatological outlook. He didn't check with any human system at all when he said what he said and when he planned what he planned and when he said that there was a glorious future coming for Israel. And that's what it says, and that's what it's always said, and that's what it's going to say no matter what. So I just am not impressed with the amount of preaching that is defending a system, defending a confession, defending some hermeneutical outlook, defending some eschatological outcome that is preferable to the one that's on the page. I'm just not impressed and apparently God's not impressed either because the language here for, for the whole evening is going to be God saying, you're not like me and I'm not like you. And I can say whatever I want to say and I can do whatever I want to do and I've already told you what I'm going to do and that includes a glorious future for Israel and if you don't like it, I don't care. God is not moved by our systems that we developed a couple hundred or a couple thousand years into church development here on planet Earth. That changes nothing about God. He has already said who he is, what he's like, what he's going to do, what his plan is. And it was always his plan from the very beginning. We love the unchangeableness of the plan of God when we read things like he chose us before the foundation of the world. We said, wow, we are so glad that God is unchanging because he chose us before the foundation of the world. And then we got here and we did everything we could to mess up that plan. And we're just really grateful that God doesn't change because that's the foundation of my salvation and my hope. But when it comes to Israel, suddenly it's just a jump ball. 
Suddenly it's, yeah, I know what God said, and I know what God planned, and I know what he keeps repeating over and over again, but he changed his mind. He did something else. He divorced Israel. Then he turned his attention to the church, and then even the definition of the word Israel changed, and now Israel means some kind of spiritual Israel. The church is now Israel. All the saved become Jerusalem somehow. Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem to come, just becomes the heavenly destiny of all believing people when they die. And the promise of a kingdom is Jesus sitting on David's throne in heaven right now. Somehow David's throne got to heaven. We were not really told how. Jesus is sitting there now and that the kingdom exists right now. This is the kingdom. So if you want to join me in singing, we can all sing, is that all there is? Because if this is the kingdom... I'm a tad disappointed because it's not exactly glorious. But if you're thoroughgoing in your confidence and faith in the word of God, and you know the things that God actually said, despite the people who won't preach it or won't look at it, if you're willing to stand toe-to-toe with what God actually says, and especially those sections of Isaiah where God tells you about himself, where he defends himself and tells you what he's like, if you're willing to deal with God on that level, then you can have complete confidence that he is the God who doesn't change, and he is the God who is going to do everything he has said he's going to do because he's completely faithful to his word, and there's not a human being on the planet, not a human system, not a human hermit, not a human eschatology. There is nothing on planet Earth or the passing of history, time, and human intellect and development that will change the fact that God has already said what he's like and what he's going to do. Right? Right. So, can I get a woo-hoo? woo-hoo. Yeah. So that's, that's from this past Sunday. Chapter 40, verse 10. After saying that Israel and Zion are bearers of good news and they're going to go say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Verse 10 then says, Behold the Lord God, Yahweh Adonai, will come with power, will come with might. With his arm ruling for him, we identified the arm last week as being Jesus Christ. His arm is going to rule here on planet earth for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense goes before him. And like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. And in his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. And he will gently lead the nursing ewes. And we looked at John 10 and all the language that Jesus used of being the good shepherd. And then in verse 12, God launches in. Who has measured the waters, apparently the waters of the earth, the waters on the planet, in the hollow of his hand? God fires off first thing with an impossible question and says, can you do this? In the palm of your hand, in the very hollow of your hand, can you gather all the waters on planet earth and measure how much that is? Okay, well, clearly the answer is you can't do it. The implication is God says, I can. I do that. In a moment, he's going to say that he's the one who does incredibly impossible things. That not only did he create the billions of stars in the galaxy, but he knows every one of them by name. And not a one of them is lost to him. And that he keeps count of them all. He does that. You don't do that. He does that. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And who has marked off the heavens by a span? That would be like saying, grab a ruler and go out and measure the expanse of the sky. Let me know what you come up with. God says, I do that. You can't do that. And of course, the implication is, if you can't do that, you're not me. You're not like me. I'm not like you. I don't have the limitations that you have. Who has calculated the dust of the earth 
by the measure. He knows exactly to the cupful how much sand there is on planet Earth, how much dirt, how much water, how much oxygen, how large the expanse of the heavens is. He knows all that. You don't. He's differentiating between himself and you. Who weighed the mountains in a balance? You didn't do that. You can't go out there. You can't weigh a mountain. Run out there and grab a mountain from the Rockies and see if you can give me the exact weight of it. Nobody can do that. And God understands the impossibility of the questions that he is asking, but he is asking them almost rhetorically so that as you consider them, you recognize that he is saying how different he is than you, how much higher, how much more powerful, that he's the creator God and that he didn't just create haphazardly. He created intentionally to the point where he designed everything and knows exactly how it was designed and how much of everything there is and how much of everything it took to design everything the way it stands right now. He's the one in charge of that. Who's going to measure the hills in a pair of scales? If you could take the hills of the earth and put them on one side of a scale and then you had to figure out the weight, what are you going to use as a counterbalance? <laughs> how are you going to figure that one out? Okay, so now that we get the idea that God is saying, I do these things, you don't. I can do things that are humanly impossible, and yet I have knowledge of all these things. Now he brings it into the spiritual realm in verse 13 and says, And who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has ever informed him? I like to point out that when God said, let there be light, when he began the whole of creation, there was nobody there for him to check with. There was nobody there for him to say, I need some input here. And he's saying it right here. Whoever directed me, whoever directed the spirit of the Lord, and who was ever his counselor, and whoever informed him of something, I like the phrase, has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? Nobody ever came to him and said, hey, did you notice that? Yeah, of course he noticed that. He knows everything. And nobody ever informed him of anything. Nobody ever came to him and said, you know, the way you're doing that mountain thing seems a little out of whack to me. I think the better approach would be to do it this way. No, he created the seas the way he created the seas because that's the way he wanted the seas to be. He created the hills. He created the mountains. He created the heavens. He created the stars. He created the universe. He created the creation the way he wanted to create it because that's what was good for him. And nobody else gets to have an opinion. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor, who has informed him? May I, for just a moment, kind of circle back to my opening comments. This is why I say that the theological constructs of human beings over the course of thousands of years, those constructs do not restrict God. He is not restricted or forced to do what human beings think he ought to do just because of the system that they created. He is not in one wit swayed by however clever human beings think they are theologically. Because nobody ever informs him and nobody ever instructs him and nobody ever tells him how it should be. So we've got to be really, really careful. We've got to be really, really certain that our theological constructions are based in what he has already revealed. And if at any point our theological systems or constructions don't fit what the Bible says, then either the Bible or our theological construction is wrong. And 100% of the time, it's the theological construction. It's not the Bible that's wrong. 
If the Bible says there's a glorious future for Israel and that doesn't fit your system, trash the system. Get rid of the system. It's a no good system. That's right. Because it doesn't align with what God said. All right, if I don't move on, I will be in ranting. <laughs> who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor, who has ever informed him? With whom did he consult? And whoever gave him understanding? At what point did God ever say, I'm perplexed? I need some counsel here. I need somebody to consult with. What do you think of how I'm doing what I'm doing? How do you think I'm wielding my almighty power in the way that I'm constructing the universe that suits me to my own glorification? I feel like perhaps I've gone a little far with that. What do you think? God has never acted like that. With whom did he ever consult? And whoever gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and who taught him knowledge. That phrase, whoever taught him the path of justice is very, very important because from the human perspective, people like to put God on trial. The people who are against the Bible or against Christianity against the morality that the Bible teaches, they will try to say, well, your God, because he says things are abominable, which we as humans think are acceptable and even preferable now, well, then your God is some kind of judge, some kind of monster. We don't like his judgments. We don't like the things that he thinks are abominable. And so who taught him justice? We prefer human justice. We prefer the justice that makes us feel good to us while we're busy rebelling against him. So it's really important to understand that God said, my justice is my justice. And nobody informed me. Nobody taught me. Nobody instructed me in the ways of justice. My justice is based on my holiness, my righteousness. And my judgment is going to be poured out because it is based on the fact that I'm the only God and I can do whatever I want. And it's a good thing that the only God is also a righteous, holy, just God because he would still be God either way. And he could pour out his judgment either way because he's the only God. It's good to know that he is a loving and gracious and fair and just and holy God. But nobody taught him to be that way. That is who he is. That is the essence of who God is in his revelation of himself. And so the justice that he lays out is the only justice by virtue of the fact that there is no other justice that can stand against his justice. Because he began by saying, which of you can do the stuff that I can do? That'd be none of you. So therefore, my justice stands. And nobody taught me this justice, because your justice ain't like my justice. Who has taught him in the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge? God has comprehensive understanding of everything. That's why we say he's omniscient, all-knowing. He knows everything. He not only knows everything factually, he knows everything in terms of reason, purpose. Why do things exist? Why do things happen? What is the purpose behind the occurrences that happen within his universe? He has comprehensive knowledge of the past, of the future. And nobody taught him that. He knows it all. And who ever informed him of the way of understanding? Okay, so he's tried to cover the gamut here. God has said understanding, which is that deep knowledge of why things happen and what happens and the purpose for things happening, and knowledge, the understanding of everything, the full comprehension of all things, the justice, the justification for why things work out the way they work out, even if they work out in a way that isn't comfortable for us, and understanding, 
his complete understanding of everybody's motive and everybody's emotion and everybody's derivation and why people do the things that they do. He knows all of it, and he went right down the list and said, whoever gave me that, with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and who taught him knowledge, and who informed him of the way of understanding? The unstated answer is nobody. Nobody was ever counselor to God. He is comprehensive within himself. That being the case, how much credibility do human beings have when they jump up with, hey, I got an idea. Here's the way you ought to do it, God. You know, well, my God wouldn't be like that. <laughs> my God would be, oh, loving and kind and gracious and kumbaya and my God would be all love and no punishment at all. My God. God doesn't care what you think your God would be like. He's the only God that is, and he's just told you what he's like, and your only choice is get in line with what he has said about him because you're going to meet him, and he's going to be just like this. Behold, verse 15, now he's going to talk about his absolute control over everything. His superiority over everything. Behold, the nations, all the tribes, all the families of the earth, all the different ethnicities on the planet, all the collective civic nations on the planet are nothing to him. They're like a drop in a bucket. If you got a full bucket, a bucket full of water, and you add a drop, does that change anything? Changes nothing. So it's insignificant. And that's what God is saying here. The nations, the opinions of the nations, the ideas of the nations, even if a group of people get together and say, let's build a tower all the way to heaven, God says, I'll knock that down. I'm in control here. And all the nations, all the peoples, all the ideas of the people, they're nothing. They're a drop in the bucket. They are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Okay, so if you get the scales and you put something on one side and you put a measure of weight on the other side and you get it finely balanced, is a speck of dust flying through the air landing on one side or the other of that scale, is it going to tip the scale at all? No. No, it's going to make no difference at all. So the idea that he's putting forward here, whether it's a speck of dust or whether it's a drop in the bucket, is that the entirety of all the people on the planet, all the nations, collectively, everybody, are nothing to God. They don't sway God. They don't instruct God. They don't influence the way he is or the things he thinks. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. The planet is nothing to him, and this implies his immensity, his enormity his control over everything. So, okay, so let's say you get some glimpse of that God. Suddenly you realize that's the God you're dealing with, and you realize, oh my gosh, I had better bring him a sacrifice appropriate to him. Uh, he's uh, immense and in control of everything and not swayed by anything, and the entirety of the planet means nothing to him. And... Well, I, I better start burning things to him, and I better start sacrificing to him, because he's the immense God. So then he says, even Lebanon, he's talking about the forests of Lebanon, which are some of the finest wood in the Middle East, cedars of Lebanon. And now they've moved from the Middle East and are, and are right up the 840, right up <laughs> over here. You can, you can find them over even if you were to burn the entirety of Lebanon, that's not enough to burn, to be an adequate sacrifice to a God that's that grand. Nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. If you took all the beasts in the forests of Lebanon and burned them with all the wood in Lebanon, that's going to scratch the surface. That's not beginning to worship a God who is of that kind of power. 
all the nations, says verse 17, are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. How many words does he have to use here in order to say, well, here, recognize the contrast. You've heard me ask the question so many times now that I'm sure the answer is tattooed to your forehead. What is the most often recited sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride. Okay, contrast that with God saying, all of you combined are less than nothing. Where does that put your pride? It is pretty silly. Yeah, because each individual person that gets here on the planet who lives for their three score and ten walk around thinking they're something. They walk around thinking, well, I'm making a difference. I'm important. I'm, I'm better than that guy, at least. I'm, I'm something. The world is a little better by the fact that I'm here. And they'll miss me when I'm gone. And, and then God says, you're nothing. All the nations collectively are less than nothing. Is God's way of saying, I'm everything. I deserve all the worship. And you can't worship me appropriately. Even if you burned all the animals and cut down all the trees for the wood to make a sacrifice to me, what is that? What about all the other planets? What about the whole rest of the solar system? What about, you know, so down here on planet Earth, some humans got together and they burned some stuff, and that's supposed to make me feel better? Do you have any idea who you're talking to? Any idea who you're dealing with? I mean, when God decides to defend himself, like he does at the end of the book of Job, this is the kind of speech he uses, the kind of speech that says, I'm everything and you're nothing. And stop thinking that you're something and that I'm impressed by you or that I will change my ways because of you or that I'll change my plan, or that I'll change my intention, because you humans don't like it. It's never the way God acts. It's never the way God talks. And he's going to do whatever he says he's going to do. And remember, this is in the context. This whole defense of God by God himself is in the context of saying, there's a future for Israel. And so the churches that say, no, there's not. God don't care. God's still going to do what he's going to do because he already said he was going to do it. And all those people and all those hermeneutic systems and all those eschatological systems and all the, you know how much that adds up to? Nothing. It means nothing to God. He does not take their counsel. He does not take their input. He's going to do what he's going to do, and he's already said what he's going to do. And in the midst of saying what he's going to do, he included, who are you? And who am I? And get that perspective correct. Now, let's go back to talking about Israel. Because this whole section of the book of Isaiah, from chapter 40 to chapter 48, is all about this glorious future for Israel. There's no way to read it any other way. And it's right in that context that God reminds everybody, yeah, who am I? And who do you think you are? Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Okay, so if you're going to try to describe that God... If you were going to try to find something to compare him to, if you were going to say, okay, the God of the Bible is like, how do you finish that sentence? That's the next question he asks. To whom then will you liken God? Because there are no other equalities. There's nobody equal to him. There's nobody that you can say, uh, yeah, God, God of the Bible, yeah. Well, he's like and then name somebody? There's nobody to name. There's nobody to, to state as his equal so that you can comprehend him better. Well, he's a lot like April. 
April just went, oh, no, 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 no. Who are you going to compare him to? To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? He's like this. Here, I'll tell you what he's like. He's like when people get together and they all what? Or what idol? Or what statue? Or what series of good works? Or what religious enterprise? Or what church gathering? Or, or what? What can you say is a one-for-one one comparison where you can say, you see that? That's like the God of the Bible. Yeah, that's, that's a good one-for-one. One. God challenges you to come up with anything here on planet Earth that is like him that you can compare him to. He is, in the truest sense, the only one who is incomparable. You can't compare him to anything. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? As for an idol, he's just said, what are you going to compare me with? Because they busy making idols. And he's asking the question, are those like me? Is there any way I'm like these idols you're making? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who's too impoverished for such an offering, gold and silver and stuff like that, selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter or fall over. As soon as you're making things that fall over, that's not God. <laughs> that's nothing like God. God doesn't fall over. Do you not know? Listen to God now mocking human beings for not getting it. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth? And its inhabitants, the inhabitants of the earth, are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in? Anybody want to give that one a shot? Get out there and see if you can make a tent out of the heavens. And here again he has said, the inhabitants of the earth are like insects. They're like grasshoppers. A form of grasshoppers is locusts that just destroy everything in their path. God says, that's what the people of earth are like. But then he says, how do you not know that? Why am I having to tell you this again? All you got to do is recognize that from the beginning, from the very creation, the very fact that the creation exists, from the foundation of the world, the fact that the world is founded demonstrates there has to be a founder. The fact that the creation exists screams creator. So given all that, this is the same argument that Paul makes when he says that the heavens declare that God exists. So it's been told you, it's been demonstrated to you, how do you not know that? How is it that you don't seem to have heard it yet? Has it not been declared to you from the very beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that it's God who sits above the circle of the earth? That verse, by the way, is a great verse for the flat earthers. Just thought I'd throw it out there. <laughs> verse 23. He it is who reduces rulers down to nothing. Okay, now he's involved in the stuff of life not just the creation but he's also in charge of who gets lifted up and who gets taken down he's in charge of the history of this planet he's in charge of the rulership and the governance of this planet and it's all leading toward the ultimate end that he has already determined he it is who reduces rulers down to nothing he it is who makes the judges of the earth <clears throat> meaningless 
Very, very important phrase, by the way. He it is who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. It is the judges of the earth who have decided that the things that he said are abominable are not abominable anymore. It's the judges of the courts of the U.S. and the other countries on the planet, the other nations on the planet. Human beings have gotten together. Okay, you're the select group of judges now. They stick on some robes and they sit together as a group and they say, well then, gay marriage, here we go. Or they say, okay, let's um, say that killing babies, that's now a constitutional right. This verse says, God don't care. The judges of the earth, human judges, do not change one whit what God has already declared as right and wrong. In other words, the judges are going to be judged. God is going to mete out his judgment, and his judgment is based on what he has already declared to be righteousness and abomination. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely they have been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. That word scarcely, the Hebrew word would be better translated, not even. So trying to find a single word in the English language, the NASB went with scarcely. If something's scarce then there's not much of it. So that's the idea behind it. They're just hardly even planted. They can be plucked up instantly. Scarcely have they been planted. Scarcely have they been sown. Scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth. But he merely blows on them, and they wither. And then the storm carries them away like the stubble. So what does God really think of the kings and the judges of the earth? He says, they're not even planted deeply enough that they can withstand it when I blow on them. I will eradicate them. I will destroy them. I will judge them. And they can't stop me again. Who are they? And who am I? Verse 25. Knowing all that, seeing God's description of himself, he returns to the question, to whom then will you liken me so that I would be his equal, says the Holy One? He's demanding answers now. This is very much like when he said to Job, he said, quit you like a man. I'm going to ask you and you're going to answer me. Where were you when I did everything? He's demanding answers from human beings to questions that simply cannot be answered because he wants human beings to reach the point of just put your hand over your mouth and shut up and recognize that you're nothing compared to him. And you think you're something because you're busy comparing yourself to other people. Comparing yourself horizontally like that to other people, you might get the impression, okay, I'm slightly better than him and I'm not as good as him. But that's not the standard. The standard is God himself. He's laid out the standard here, and he's demanding that you face the question, what am I like? Who are you dealing with? Who do you think you are? And who am I? To whom will you liken me that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, And see who has created these. The NASB added the word stars for clarification because that seems to be what is implied here by Isaiah. Lift up your eyes. Take a look at the heavens. Take a look at the stars of the sky. Look at the heavens. Who created those? You didn't do it. No human beings in the history of planet Earth did it. But they're there. And they're still there. And they've always been there. And they're consistently there. And that's why you now have maps of stars that you can navigate oceans by. Because God made them and placed them where he wanted them. And they're permanent up there in his firmament. 
Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. The one who leads forth the host of the stars by number. If you go to the Creation Museum up in Kentucky, just south of Ohio, there is a uh, planetarium there where they, they project these expanses of the universe on it. And it's truly impressive. It's fun to watch because through animation, they keep going deeper and deeper out into known space and unknown space and what's beyond that. And one of the things that they stress over and over is, we have no idea how many stars there are. We just don't know. Remember when Carl Sagan was well known for saying billions and billions? Because he didn't know. There's just so many stars out there. So God takes the time to say, not only is he who, the one who created these stars, he's the one who leads them forth in their host by number. He knows how many there are, and he knows their groupings, and he knows the host, the armies of the stars. And he calls them all by name. We human beings, because we have telescopes and we can look up at the sky, we have a tendency to name things. Oh, that right there, that's uh, Ursa Major. That one over there is Ursa Minor. Flat third. And, and this one over here is... That one over there, that's Virgo. We give them names. We don't know if those are the names. God knows the names. He's named every single one of them. And he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and his strength and his power. Not one of them is missing. He knows where they all are. He knows what their assignment is. He knows why they're placed in the heavens. There are galaxies upon galaxies of billions of billions of stars that are beyond the ability for us to see. But they're out there. <laughs> there it is. Why? Because they're there for God. They're not there for us. We're trying to discover it. We're trying to see deeper into God's creation. But we have this very limited glimpse into God's creation. He has made this magnificent creation for himself. And he knows every corner of it, every nook and cranny. He knows every star by name. He calls them all. And he does all that because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. And not one of them is missing. So why do you say, O Jacob, why do you assert, O Israel, why are you willing to claim things like, my way is hidden from the Lord? He knows where every star is. <laughs> he knows every star by name in the expanse of his universe. You think he doesn't see you? You think he doesn't know what you're up to? Why, O oh Jacob? Why do you assert, O oh Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice that's due me escapes the notice of my God. Boy, that is the perfect description of human beings on planet Earth right now. Simply because they haven't been judged yet, they don't think they're going to be. And they think that they're getting away with it and that God doesn't see it. And that's why they continue to make rules and laws that are completely contrary to God's thinking. They're doing that because they think they're getting away with it because they think that God doesn't know or God doesn't see or if there is a God, he doesn't care. Well, that's the same thing back here in Isaiah that God accuses Israel of. The implication being, of course I see it. That's verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Here's God again returning to the theme of how do you not know this? How is it that you in your human ignorance don't comprehend who I am and what I'm like? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable, without question. You can't form an opinion different than his and persuade him otherwise. His understanding of everything that goes on in his universe is absolutely perfect. And there's nothing hidden from his sight. And how do you not know that? 
how do human beings continue to ignore that fact? Now, if we had time, and I know we're running a little bit late, but we're almost done, so let's do this. Turn back to Psalm 121 for just a second. It's a very, very short psalm, but here David says the exact same thing. Isaiah uses the fact that God does not become weary or tired as a way of describing that God is constantly alert to everything that's going on in his universe. He doesn't need to take a break. He doesn't need time out. He doesn't need 10 minutes to get a drink and refresh himself. He never gets tired. His understanding of everything is constant and inscrutable because he doesn't become weary. And he doesn't get tired because he's not like us. Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from whence shall my help come. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He shall not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. I love that phrase that the God of Israel, the God who keeps Israel, will neither slumber nor sleep. Several years ago, Elder Ward told me a story. We were talking on the phone, one of those late, late phone calls we used to have. And in it, he was talking about some damage he had done in his church, a mistake he had made. He needed to talk to somebody about it. He needed to tell somebody. So he was telling me about it, and he said, I was up walking the floor all night, could not sleep. I was so upset. I'd made such a big error And he said, and I opened my Bible, and it fell open to Psalm 121, and I read, the God who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. And I figured, well, there's no point in both of us staying up. So I went to bed and went to sleep. (laughs) It's a great deal of comfort in knowing that the God who keeps you doesn't slumber or sleep. You go get some sleep. You get some rest. He's got it. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives. That one gives. The one we've been describing all night. The all-powerful one. The holy, righteous master of everything. That one gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. That's the reason you persevere. It's the reason you get through this life. That's why you can get through the hardships. Because you know that the one who has all the power will sustain you and give you strength when you're weary. And though youths, though young people, or in New York that would be youths, (laughs) though youths, Grow weary and tired. Can I get an older fella in here? Someone my age, Tom said. Would we agree with this? You start out young and full of vigor, and then you just get tired. As far as I can see, you're born, you get really tired, and then you die. I think that's how life works. (laughs) Youths grow weary, and they grow tired. Vigorous young men stumble badly fall down. Yet, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary, not grow faint. What happened to them? They got old, they got tired, and then God regenerates them, lifts them up, empowers them, 
And that's what's waiting for us is because we had faith in Christ and we are waiting on the Lord and his deliverance. We're going to gain new strength. We're going to mount up with wings like eagles. I don't even know what that looks like, but I like the description. We're going to run and not get tired. Won't that be a good day? I'm at the point in my life where I don't run. I'm not sure I can run anymore. My hips give me enough trouble that running isn't on the agenda. I love the promise that I'm going to run and not get tired. I'm going to walk and not become weary. That's a promise I claim for me because I've been young and now I'm old. Young is better. (laughs) Okay, so do you understand God's argument in that chapter? His argument is, who are you dealing with? Who do you think I am? Who are you going to compare me to? So whatever I say I'm going to do, I'm going to do it. And your opinion on it means nothing. It changes nothing. The nations, the judges, the kings of the earth are nothing. God is going to do whatever he's going to do. He has already declared what he's going to do. He has already declared in advance what the future of planet Earth is going to be. And even if that seems unimaginable, unthinkable, incomprehensible to human beings, so what? It's the plan of a God who isn't like us. It's the plan of a God who has all comprehension. So just because we don't get it changes nothing. All we can do is read the Word of God and align our thinking with what the Word of God says. Even when we can't comprehend it, we have to recognize that He does comprehend it. He has already told us what it is. It is all in His hands. Glory to His name. Praise His holy name. Worship Him because He's the God who's going to do it all anyway, regardless of what anybody thinks. Amen. Got it? Good plan. Not my plan, but I agree, it's a good plan. It's the plan he laid out right here in the Bible. And if, I'm circling around to how I began now, if some of these folk who say that God is done with Israel because it doesn't fit their system, and then I said they only read the parts of Isaiah that kind of work with their system, they need to read stuff like that, like the passage we just read tonight. And maybe they would kind of Recognize that their hobby horse isn't quite as stable as they thought. It's going to topple over just like all the other idols of men. And God's going to stand. God's going to do what he's going to do. And at the end of human history, he's going to be able to say, See, I told you. How did you not know? They that wait. for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.